Stop the press, it's on! After two sellout events, the Wellness Summit returns to Melbourne in 2015 for two days of powerhouse wellness with your favourite wellness couch hosts and Australia's wellness elite. Join us at the Melbourne Convention Centre on Saturday, August 15th and Sunday 16th for an inspirational, educational, edutaining, fun, exciting, sensational cocktail of wellness that promises to help you take your life to the next level. Now, if you want very special access to our limited two-for-one tickets, then make sure you go to www.thewellnesscouch.com, enter your name and email address, and get on the early bird list. So pop the dates in the diary, and we'll see you there. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, the abnormal psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to get the best out of you. And I am really excited today, especially because I get you all to myself. No guests today um, because I have had a lot of feedback. Thank you so much for all the wonderful things that are coming in and all the great questions. And I thought that now that it's been about six months since the show started, that I should give you some answers to some of all the wonderful questions that you're, you're sending in. And some of them I've actually uh, responded to or emailed back. And the important thing to know is that I can answer general questions, but I can't answer questions around your specific situation or I guess treatment kind of questions around how you, what you should do next. But I'm more than happy to answer general questions. So how about we get going with the very first question, um, which is from uh, Paul. And he says... What happens at the very first appointment? What can I expect when I go and see a psychologist for the first time? And I think this is a great question because often there's a little bit of mystery, probably based on what we see in the movies, around what actually happens when you go to see a psychologist. Well, I can tell you about my rooms and what I know to be like most psychologist rooms. And usually what you'll go in is find a room that has a desk in it, most likely. Um, and if it doesn't have a desk, the rest of it's fairly standard. And usually that's going to be two or three chairs of some kind um, that you sit in and talk to. I, I don't know many psychologists that have the couch for you to lay on. They may certainly have a couch, um, and I do in my office, but it's it's definitely not where people come and lie down um, and and do what we often see in the movies. So at that first appointment, you can usually expect that you'll sit down with your psychologist in a room, usually sitting on chairs, and then the conversation that usually happens first after the introductions is a bit of an understanding of what actually will happen next. I know that with my clients, we talk a little bit about confidentiality. We talk about consent forms. Usually that consent is permission to speak to a GP, for example, or any other treating professionals that might be involved in their care. Um, Sometimes there's a conversation around the limits to confidentiality and what the limits are is certainly if there's concern that someone might harm themselves um, or if a child's at risk of harm, that we are required to notify around those matters. So getting an understanding of that. I guess usually next there's also uh, an understanding of fees or um, 
eligibility to funding, if there's funding or understanding how a third party payer works. So a third party payer might be um, veteran services or an insurance company um, and what kind of reporting might go back to them as part of the them being the payer for the treatment. So once that kind of housework type stuff is handled, then the next thing is usually to move on to the assessment. And so the assessment process is normally either, again, in my experience, is either the person telling the story of what what has happened um, and the psychologist taking notes about that, or it can be more formal where there's questions. So questions that move through um, information that the psychologist needs to get a really good handle on what's what's happening. Now, some psychologists are diagnostic in that they will use that information to make a very clear diagnosis and give that to you. Um, certainly in some cases, it's not always helpful for someone to have a diagnosis, which might sound really strange. Um, but, but also, even at the end of the first appointment, if it's really long and really thorough or not all the information has been obtained, sometimes it can take a few sessions to continue to gather information to get a really good understanding of what's actually going on. And there's also some view that sometimes there's not actually a diagnosis to be arrived at. There's certainly a lot of symptoms and features that could cluster together to look like a certain type of diagnosis, particularly if there's been a trauma history. It might just be that in the first instance, the goal of the psychologist and the client is to actually work through the presenting problems and and what they can do in the here and now and not necessarily have to come up with a very clear diagnosis. Of course, having a diagnosis does help with treatment planning um, because most psychologists will work from an evidence-based treatment model, which means that uh, we use um, therapy that has got evidence for its efficacy, which is basically efficacy is a fancy word for saying that it's effective um, and has proven itself to be able to manage or assist someone with the symptoms of that presenting problem. So during the the assessment, lots of questions, particularly um, around their what's happening in their social setting at the moment, um, what's happening in terms of their physical health, what's happening in terms of their thoughts, what thoughts have changed or what thoughts are they worried about. Similarly with behaviours, any behaviours that they may have become concerned that have changed, um, things they're not doing or are doing that are different and perhaps part of the problem. Also understanding the family history. Has there been a family history of mental health issues? Um, has there been any past mental health issues for the person in front of me? So um, have they seen a psychologist or counsellor or psychiatrist in the past? And what types of treatment may may they have, would they do or were effective, I should say, in the past or perhaps not effective as well? What didn't they find useful as part of that therapeutic experience? So Moving on from there, we might look at a drug and alcohol history or a gambling history, um, any current medications they might be on, um, their family, um, their immediate family, wider family, or people who might be important in their lives or living in their home. Um, Also moving on to gather information about their sleep quality, um, any weight changes uh, and other things in terms of concentration. So without going all the way through my particular assessment, um, just being conscious of time, 
I think it's important to understand that at that first appointment, it's also about you checking out the psychologist and making sure that it's someone that you feel comfortable with as well. And you do have the right to say at the end of the appointment, you know, I found this a little bit tricky and give the psychologist an opportunity to know what it is that was making you feel uncomfortable. And even though they try really hard to understand what's happening for you, they they can't read your mind. And they're trying very hard in the assessment to not only build a relationship with you, but also to get a really good understanding of what's happening for you. So being clear that perhaps um, you're, you're feeling that it's quite overwhelming, please share that with your psychologist and give them an opportunity to support you. So I hope that answers your question, Paul, about what to expect in the first uh, appointment with a psychologist. So let's go and have a look at a next question. And this is from a couple of people and it was, what is the actual difference between anxiety and depression? And it's a really good question because for people who aren't sure about symptoms they have or the symptoms that someone they know has, it can be really confusing what actually are the the actual diagnostic criteria for those different disorders. So to start with, to make sure that everyone understands it's listening, how we go about making those decisions, there's a There's a book called the DSM, which you may have heard people refer to, and its actual name is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it's been around for quite some time, and the reason we, and it's up to its fifth edition, so it's currently the DSM-5, and the reason that we use this particular manual, because it gives consistency across different health professionals. So if I talk to a GP or write a letter to a GP, I might use the different codes or language used in the DSM, so he understands or she understands clearly what I'm talking about. And there's another one called the ICD-10, which tends to be used um, a lot in Europe, but they're trying to get the two books aligned because some people use the ICD-10 and a lot of people use the DSM-5. The DSM-5 is quite American um, because it's put out by the American Psychiatric Association. But this is the book that I would come to um, if writing a formal report so that I can make sure the language um, is consistent with what other, other health professionals might be stating around the person's condition. But if I'm talking more generally, I'll use more general terms. So let's have a look at specifically what is the difference between depression and anxiety. So depression, um, we used to refer that to that as a mood disorder, or certainly we still can refer to that as a mood disorder. Um, but for a major depressive disorder, the things that we would be looking at is that there's that feeling of sadness emptiness or hopelessness um, that is experienced in terms of mood most days of the week or nearly every day. You might also find with a person who has a major depressive disorder that they have lost a lot of interest or not experiencing pleasure in a lot of the activities of the day and this would be happening nearly every day as well. We would probably see a weight change, usually weight loss, um, but it can vary. Certainly, I probably see a mixture of probably 50-50% actually. I probably see weight loss and weight gain. Um, also, insomnia or hypersomnia, so it, where there's a lot of sleep changes for the person. Either they're sleeping excessively, so lots of extra hours sleep, maybe 12 or 14 hours or more, or where they're finding it very difficult to settle down to sleep, or they're waking through the night, or they're waking early in the morning and unable to get back to sleep. 
The other thing that we might find in someone with a major depressive disorder is that there's psychomotor agitation. And so what we mean by that is they could be, they feel jittery or jumpy or feel a need to move. Or for some people, it might even be um, feelings of being slowed down. And sometimes I have clients describe things um and the best way to describe it is they feel like they're walking through really thick molasses, just feeling really slowed down. There can also be feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt, you know, feeling responsible for how other people around them are feeling or feeling to blame. They might also have disruption to their ability to concentrate or feeling really indecisive. Um, and that's happening nearly every day. The other thing that is one of the hardest parts of depression is they may have recurrent thoughts of death. So this is not uh, an anxiety about dying, but fears um, or sorry, feeling as though they, they keep drifting back to thinking about harming themselves. So having thoughts of suicide, um, but not necessarily with a specific plan or an intention to um, take an attempt on their lives but certainly they may have recurrent thoughts of death or wishing that the pain of the low mood were over. So what we would also expect is that they would experience a number of those symptoms. The DSM criteria is at least five of those symptoms above and that the experience of those symptoms is actually impairing their day-to-day functioning such as social or occupational functioning and that it's not attributable to any other something else that might be going on, for example, um, substance abuse. So that's really the main details around depression. So it's really characterized by that low mood and loss of interest in doing things, feeling really slowed down um, and just feeling as though there's a real sense of hopelessness about the future. So I hope that clears up that area of depression and depression has a number of evidence-based strategies around to how a psychologist would work with an individual and of course there's unique aspects to what that person brings also uniquely what types of support networks they have in place so let's have a look at anxiety so there's a few different types of anxiety that are around so uh, social anxiety for example which is better known as a social phobia which is being fearful in a social situation um, where a person fears being under scrutiny by others or being judged or observed by others. Um, So often you'll see there's a lot of avoidance there for a person who has a social anxiety. So specific phobias, most people know specific phobias in terms of being afraid of spiders um, or other things, but often phobias, when they get in the way of everyday functioning, that's quite often when they end up in the psychologist's office, that often people might be afraid of mice or spiders or something like that, but it's when people start to have um, a phobic response to something in their everyday life, and then it becomes quite difficult to function occupationally um, or, or socially. So um, we also have selective mutism um, where someone, although able to speak, um, fails to speak. This can be in specific social situations, um, but of course this will start to interfere with their educational or social life. Um, We also have panic disorder and that's more characterised by recurrent unexpected panic attacks, So, which is 
intense fear. So it might be that the person has palpitations, sweating, trembling, um, feeling like they're choking, chest pain, nausea. Um, They may feel dizzy um, and feel numbing or tingling sensation in their um, in their body or particularly a lot of people report in their arms or their face or feelings of derealization, which means it just feels like things are unreal or depersonalization, which means they feel like they're almost detached from themselves. And in that moment, they feel like they're going crazy or that they might, they might even die as a result of that panic attack. So there are, are a number of different, um, there's also agoraphobia um, and uh, a few others, but I'll just talk about generalizing anxiety disorder just so I can make sure I get through a few of these questions. So in terms of generalized anxiety disorder, what we would see here in an individual is mostly excessive anxiety and worry. So, and this would be occurring many days of the week. So the individual finds it really difficult to control that worry. Um, and that worry can be about someone else, it can be about their health, but lots of worry about lots of things basically. The anxiety and worry associated usually with three or more um, different things. Um, So I'm just trying to give you a really good example. So just thinking through some of the clients I have with generalized anxiety, the reason why it's quite generalized is because it does seem to occur across a number of things. They worry, will they be late for work? Um, Is there enough food in the fridge? You know, did they spend enough time with the children? Um, was the work that they did at work enough, you know, good enough quality? So it tends to be from one thing to another that there's very little peace um, from their worry that it tends to jump around to nearly every aspect of And that's why it's called generalized. And again, they might feel a restlessness or feeling really keyed up or on edge in their body. Um, they might be really easily fatigued. So feeling like they're just constantly have tired because of course all this worry is absolutely exhausting they might have difficulty concentrating or feeling their mind just goes blank there might be some irritability um, muscle tension so feeling tightness in the body and again there might be um, some sleep disturbance either falling asleep or staying asleep or feeling that the the sleep is quite broken and restless so um, there also can be this combination of anxiety, worry, and physical symptoms, again, they cause significant distress across their social life or their work life or in other areas, important areas of functioning. And again, it can't be attributed to something else um, such as substance abuse or another medical condition such as thyroid issues. Um, And yeah, so it's really an aspect of generalized anxiety is that it it seems to be about a number of different types of events or activities that they're involved in. And the intensity and duration um, is it tends to be out of proportion to the actual likelihood of something happening. And, you know, often we hear people talk about, you know, anxiety being, you know, worrying about something that may never happen or is unlikely to happen well before it's even possible that it could happen. Um, but, but certainly for the person with the generalized anxiety, there's really a frustration around not being able to find any freedom or peace from that constant gnawing worry about anything and everything. So again, with anxiety, there's evidence-based treatments um, where psychologists are very aware of what type of treatment models work um, for anxiety. But then again, they'll, they'll 
overlay that over what the individual um, has in terms of their resources, in terms of other social supports um, or, or how they're functioning at the moment. And of course, with both depression and anxiety, there is a place for medication for some people. Um, you know, I know that that's quite controversial and people have an opinion around medication, but I think, again, it has to be taken case by case that certainly therapy in some cases has been found to be as effective as medication in some presentations, but certainly in quite severe anxiety and depression, I believe that there is certainly a place for medication um, or more formal treatment, of course, in conjunction with a psychologist or any other team of health professionals that can support that person to move through that really difficult time. So just having a look now at one of the next questions, this one's specific to anxiety, and it's um, what if it feels like the anxiety comes without a trigger, that there's no obvious trigger for the anxiety or, or panic attack? So again, this one's a really good question, and I get asked that a lot. And the what happens with anxiety over time is it it tends to be a bit of a habit, um, not not one that's easily changed. So anxiety can start to be triggered internally, and that is. Um, because of cues. So just like we have external cues, we might see something or hear something, smell something that triggers a sensation um, in our body or triggers our fight or flight response because that smell or sound has been associated with a particular threat in the past, even if it was a perceived threat. So for example, if you have a really yucky boss and that boss wears a particular perfume, let's say it's a woman, and they you smell their perfume as you walk down the hallway and then suddenly you might start to get um, some symptoms, anxiety, the heart might race a little and the stomach might feel a bit nauseous because perhaps you're, you're fearing seeing your boss in that time because you've had some difficult confrontations with them in the past. So with an internal cue, it can be a thought. And often with anxiety, we hear a lot of the what ifs. So we might hear, uh, what if they don't like my report? Or what if the boss berates me in front of everybody today? Um, without going into a conversation about bullying, it's staying focused on anxiety. So, so often it's that internal thought process of the what if that actually triggers that fight or flight response. That even though there was no obvious external cue and you might have been sitting in your office, it's that thought process that triggers that cascade of responses. What if I don't get this done in time? What if it's good? enough quality? What if the boss uh, yells at me in front of everybody? How could I, you know, I won't cope. That's just too much and too hard. And the body gets that message that there's potentially a threat in place. And it provides the fight or flight response thinking that it's actually going to be helping you to get through that really tricky time. But in actual fact, it's you then start to worry about the worry and and the fight or flight process then um, snowballs and triggers itself. So I hope that answers that question that sometimes with anxiety, no, there isn't any obvious external cue about why it got triggered. And it, and it might just be a thought process that triggers that cascade of physiological responses and psychological responses that result in that really um, uncomfortable state of feeling very anxious or in a state of panic. So um, I think that hopefully answers that question. Gosh, I can't believe how fast this time has gone. Um, so let me just have a quick look at maybe one of the other questions that I could answer quickly. Okay, um, there's one here. What is the very best therapy type? Now, that's a really tricky question. Um, yes, there's evidence-based therapy types 
for many of the disorders that are um, that you, that people may experience. But it's it's there's no really one therapy type without doing a really good assessment on someone. It's very hard to know uh, what treatment to prescribe, so to speak. So you really, you know, I encourage you to go and see your GP uh, or get a referral to a psychologist or visit your local psychologist and let them do a really good assessment with you so that you can discuss with them the treatment planning at the end of that assessment process to find out what might be the best therapy type for you, especially given the resources you have access to can make a difference on what therapy type as well. But certainly psychologists work from an evidence-based treatment model. So looking at what the research tells us um, that is going to be effective for, for your presenting problem and your unique situation. So so I'm sorry, but there is probably no answer to that. Certainly a lot of people hear about CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and I and I do use that a lot and I and I'm you know there is a lot of research around CBT. But that's not to say that there's not other therapy types that are effective um, to to help people um, in different ways. And certainly CBT has some very clear ways that it can help certain disorders. But there are other therapy types um, that can be just as effective and and may appeal to you more. So that's that question. Um, I had another question, or actually a few people from different communities asking if I could bring the resilience workshop to their town. So Sydney, Melbourne, and a few other areas have asked about that. Um, look, I would love to bring the resilience for the mind and body to your town. The best way to contact me about that is to email info at carriethompsoncasey.com. That's um, info, I-N-F-O at carriethompsoncasey.com. That's C-A-R-R-I-E-T-H-O-M-S-O-N C-A-S-E-Y.com. And um, I'm more than happy to have a chat with you about organizing an event um, in your particular town. I'm hoping that I can take um, that particular workshop or I have a couple of other workshops that I also run in the community around uh, working with change agents, um, other psychologists and health professionals to help them um, build relationships make effective change and connection with their clients and helping them to get great results through that change agency with their clients. So there's a number of different workshops that I offer. But certainly if you'd like me to come to your town, I would love to meet you and love to come out. So send me an email and we can see what we can organize. Um, I'm just really conscious of the time. Um, What other questions have I got here on my list? Oh, what what am I reading right now? Um, Okay, so what am I reading? I'm actually, I don't do a lot of reading with the book in my hand at the moment because I'm on the road so much doing rural clinics. One thing that works really well for me um, is to use an app called Audible and I listen to a lot of books. Um, recently, I was very lucky to go to Brisbane to go to a wonderful event called Women Leading Change, organized through the Wake Up Project. And that was um, about a six-hour drive for me each way. So it was great because I had a great opportunity opportunity to listen to some books I had stashed. Often the books I read are books that have been recommended to me more than once. So I know if they're coming to me from different directions that people uh, think that there's something powerful or a message there for me. So on the way to Brisbane, um, I read, or sorry, listened to The Alchemist, which is a great story. Um, it, it has sort of a, a novel feel to it in terms that you're listening to a fiction, um, but there's certainly some elements and meaning um, in the background of that story, which can be really powerful in terms of, you know, uh, following your own personal journey and, and being open to experience. Um, let me think what other 
I've been into a bit of Seth Godin at the moment. Oh, sorry, did I say that book was um, The Alchemist by Paul, I think it's pronounced Celo, Paolo Celo. So P-A-U-L-O and then his last name is C-O-E-L-H-O. So I really enjoyed The Alchemist. Um, the Seth Godin things that I've, I've been into at the moment um, is Leap First, um, which is creating work that matters um, so they can make sure I've got some great things for you. And the other Seth Godin, which was quite long, was the Icarus Deception. And I found this really, really got into this. This was, again, talking about um, understanding who we are, that self-knowledge, which I'm very passionate about, us knowing ourselves and knowing our strengths and knowing that we have so much to offer ourselves and the world. And sometimes it can be really hard. It feels like it's really out of reach for us or, or really locked away. And sometimes we can be waiting for someone to come and unlock that within us. And of course, that would be lovely. But I, I really want want you to to know the strengths that you have and to be able to unlock that for yourself and just know your amazing potential. And I think everybody has this amazing human potential. And you know, I just love it when people feel that they're able to be the best version of themselves. Something else that I read recently, which I found really interesting, um, was The Big Leap um, by Gay Hendricks, which I found really interesting. And that talked a lot about, um, again, that self-knowledge and understanding some of the self-limiting beliefs that we may have about ourselves um, and how sometimes people seem to set themselves an upper limit. And, and just when they um, they feel really good and they get to a certain point, it's almost like something comes in and changes that, that they revert back to a default almost way of running themselves, almost like they feel uncomfortable with being happy because they haven't experienced that for some time and and they feel as though, oh, it's, it's it won't last long, so I probably need to go back to my other version of myself. So, wow, I really thought I would get through a lot more questions than I have. Um, and perhaps I should schedule in another Answering Your Questions podcast in, in a few podcast time. But thank you again for just, it's just been amazing to have the opportunity to talk to you and and, and start to get to know you um, with the emails that are coming in. And if, if you haven't emailed me, please feel free. I would love to hear from you and, and what you like about the podcast and what you would like me to do more of or, or topics that I haven't covered as yet that you would like me to cover. Um, there's, there's so much I want to talk to you about, and I'm just so grateful that you, that you listen to the podcast and I really very much hope that you're getting something out of it. And if you do enjoy the podcast, you could do me a wonderful favor and pop over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. If you enjoy the show, that would be great. And that way, um, hopefully the podcast can, can be heard by many other people that can get to know that it's out there. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the show um, and I I really um, want to thank you again and don't forget you can support the show by telling your friends and, and telling people that you think might need to hear the difference between depression and anxiety today and understanding what happens in the psychologist first meeting. Um, you can go to the Facebook page, Carrie Thompson Casey, that's Thompson without a P. You can like us there, um, like me there, or um, give your feedback. You can also subscribe to, subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And um, feel free to send me an email. I would love to hear you. And again, I, it's a bit tricky 
I can't obviously offer any type of therapy or, or psychological advice via email, but certainly if you had topics you wanted me to cover or, or very general questions, then I can see how I, go, I can go about inviting guests on to help me answer those questions. But thank you for joining me and I'll see you again on the very next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realize your potential. Take care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.